This is iLink, a podcast presented by FHL Bank Atlanta. Hello and welcome to another episode of iLink, an FHL Bank Atlanta podcast. My name is Taylor McKenzie and I'm the Marketing Communications Manager here at the bank. Joining me today is Todd Wacker, Regional Account Relationship Manager, and Joe Kennerson, Managing Director of the Darling Consulting Group. Together, they're going to talk to us about preparing for rising rates. Joe, Todd, thank you for joining us today. Awesome. So, Joe, it's a, it's a nice uh, sunny day in Atlanta, and we're excited to have you uh, on um, following up last week's webinar. We enjoyed the content there, and we just kind of have some follow-up topics to go over. Um, hope you're game for this. Yeah, thanks, Todd and, and Taylor. Uh, thanks for having me. This is my first time in the, the podcast realm. I was always hoping my first podcast was going to be about fantasy football, but here we are talking banking. So <laughs> I'm excited. You know, Joe, last week when you were doing the webinar with us, I, I heard you, I think, refer to yourself as an Alco geek. And I was wondering, is that a, t- is that a title that you gave to yourself or did that come from your house? that come from your coworkers, you know, where, where would that come from? It had to have been my wife. My wife's in the medical industry. And uh, when she overhears me talking banking, she's like, why does your voice change when you start talking or doing these webinars? So yeah, I'm, I'm not looked at as a, uh, a, a cool banker at home. <laughs> I know. I, I know that feeling. I always like to say that my, my kids are waiting when I get home to ask me about, you know, the funding we put out into the world and how we got people in houses. But Really, they just want to know what I eat for lunch, and and I, I kind of I'm a little ashamed that they're not as pumped as I am. I'm not sure if you share that feeling. Yeah, it's so true. I know. I'm so excited to talk shop, and uh, no, it's really just uh, princess dresses and, and Barbies. I have two daughters, so. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, very nice, very nice. All right. Well, um, on the uh, on you know the interest rate outlook, I don't think much has changed. Maybe a week over week, but I know we are entering. Um, another Fed meeting, and I want to you know just go back you know in time here, maybe six weeks when we had our last Fed rate hike, or I guess our first of this series. But just following the Fed rate hike last time, you know, if we looked at the the implied um, futures or you know the the Bloomberg screens, I think they were pegging for seven and a half total rate hikes on the year. So that would be one down, six and a half to go. We fast forward that to today and. You know, we're looking at the potential for 10 hikes this year, um, you know, and, and you know, I think that that was something a, a sh- surprise to us. I think even if you went back another maybe eight weeks, we were only at four or five on the year. Um, I know the Fed has a lot on their, their plate. Um, you know, we talk about unemployment being one of their gauges and that being in place um, really at the start of this year, the under 4%. I'm not really sure how much um, the Fed could affect the unemployment, but I guess that is one of their gauges. You know, the next one being inflation, that's one that I think we're all, you know, on pins and needles for um, how much pressure is going to be, um, you know, put on the consumer. I think needless to say, whether it's, you know, six and a half, six, you know, six, six, seven hikes or, or nine more hikes this year, I think we're going to have, uh, you know, more into this tightening cycle. You know, what, what are your thoughts, you know, Joe, as we're preparing, you know, balance sheets for this tightening cycle? I know that's where you specialize in. Uh, it's it's been a wild ride this year and I even go back to when we came into the year it was like oh you know this inflation thing is transitory the Fed's only going to go up a, a couple of times and it's like 
then the market's like flipped in like three months. It's been, you know, remarkable to see that it's, it's changed the, you know, really the uh, dynamic of, of these meetings and uh, yeah, how this thing, you know, plays out is it's, it's, I mean, it's going to be again, from us Alco geeks, it's going to be somewhat exciting. We're going to learn a lot to be very educational to go through this, go this, go to the session. I think um, it makes it really hard for a banker to plan. Right, because you got yeah you know, the Fed or the market now saying the Fed's going to get up to like two and a half percent by the end of the year. Yeah, you know, this is as of the end of April, um, and I don't think the Fed really wants to go up that much. They just they're behind the, the eight ball on 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 this inflation, um, and so now you got all these recessionary camps that are popping up. Right, folks that are saying Fed's going to raise rates so much aggressively, it's going to you know put this economy into a tailspin. Others you know saying we can't raise rates enough to deal with this inflation. It's like whoa. So, you know, as, as bankers, we're plan, planning for this. It's like, you know, how do I look at this, right? Because I've got the near-term pressures of what looks to be a very aggressive Fed cycle, right? Rates up and, and likely for the yield curve to flatten, maybe even invert. But then you get this tail risk of this recessionary thing that's floating out there. It's like, wow, that's, I mean, you know, those are two completely different situations. And, and again, it's going to be a wild ride. And I just come back to um, how do we plan you know, for this? It's like, you ask a banker today, what's my loan outlook over the next six to 12 months? And it's like, uh, you know, and, and of course there are some institutions out there that are going to new markets or have new lending teams. They've got their growth plan. But I think in aggregate, it's like, how is Main Street going to react to this increase in interest rates? It's like, we all have our mortgages over here at 3%. The world just refied. Now we've got mortgages priced at you know over five percent today, like commercial loans. Commercial pricing has to go, you know, you know towards five percent. Spreads are just way too tight. And so how are, you know how are the customers going to react? How is that going to impact volume? The good news is you know the um, you know the the refinancing should slow, get some stability there. But that's a that's a big question mark. Then you ask a banker like, what happens to checking accounts? It's like we've had all this checking account growth over the past two years, like. The Fed goes up, say, 100 to 150 in a short period of time. What's going to happen with these checking accounts? <laughs> it's like nobody knows the answer to that, right? Nobody knows. And so ultimately, if I'm coming back to your question, you know, we've got to bring this back to who we are, like our customers. What are our data trends? What is our risk position? It's like we've got some clients where they've got, you know, a handful of depositors that control a big portion of their deposit base. Others are kind of smooth, smoothed out. Right. And so you're going to have different, you know, strategies and I guess reactions to, you know, kind of what happens there. I think on the interest rate risk side, right. If I'm kind of planning for this uncertainty, it's like, you know, we're going through this challenging discussion at Alco. It's like, do I think there's more risk to rates going up, on the short end and the yield curve flattens or ultimately this rate environment turning back around, you know, a year from now, because we don't know, like we don't know how this thing plays out. And, and there are tactics that we can do, you know, for, for each one of those. And I think one, you know, tactical area that we're spending a lot of time in, in, at Alco is we're focusing a lot on deposit planning. You know, it's like, ask a question, right? if it goes up a hundred, you know, in the next two months, what's your deposit move? And, and, the, and the answer is usually, well, I'm going to wait and see, you know, and, uh, and that, uh, that's obviously going to happen. I want to wait and see what, you know, what does competition do? Am I going to see deposits start to move? But I want to start to be a little bit more proactive 
and say, all right, well, what happens if, right? What happens if my biggest competitor rolls out a one and a half percent CD special next month? All right, what happens if I start seeing my big depositors pull out money, all right? Or if I'm getting those phone calls, how am I dealing with negotiated pricing? Have I set up the rules of engagement there? If I roll out a new product, what would it look like? In the back half of this year, how am I really going to minimize cannibalization? Because that's when the deposit competition, according to the steadfast, is really going to pick up, is really going to pick up. So, um, you know, that, <laughs> that's a lot to unpack right there. Um, yeah. Well, let's, let's, yeah, we can, let's, let's stick with the deposit side. We can, we can, let's maybe dive a little deeper in here. I know on the, the webinar uh, last week, you know, you had a phrase that stuck with me just saying, you know, using your gut feel versus, you know, using the data. And I think one of the, the items that a lot of our banks deal with are, you know, the different blocks of depositors. Um, what risk do you see on deposit cannibalization when, you know, either money market account repricing takes place or even CD specials? I'll give you an example too. I, I was out just kind of flipping around looking for teaser CD rates um, this last week. And, you know, I noticed some three-year rates, you know, at 160, even out to 2% and some five-year rates over 2%, you know, what happens, you know, in an institution when they decide to offer these as well, you know, what, what factors should they be considering just for their own, um, cost of funds that exist now versus these new funds coming in? Yeah, it's going to be, you know, that's going to be one of the big risks is the cannibalization. And generally the, 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 the risk to the, to the margin is really felt, you know, on the, on the backside of the, the rate cycle, right? It's like, we've, we saw this in 2018 and 2019, early in the cycle, it's not as bad because we're obviously rates aren't as high. Um, you know, the first thing I think about is like, what, you know, what does the CD territory look like you know, through this cycle and after this cycle, because there's been such a massive deposit and exchange over the past, like how many years? And it's like, man, 85% of all deposits are in nominatory deposits. And I hear from a lot of bankers that I'm done in the CD game, right? I'm, 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 I'm not going there. And I, and I get it. I'm, kind of, I'm in that camp as, as, as well. Um, but if I'm a CD player historically, you know, and these, you know, just starting to see 2% CD specials, which is likely to happen, you know, later this year, how am I going to react? Right. And what about all those CD customers that are sitting idle in savings and money markets? You know, how am I going to price those? I think you got to be really, really careful if you're going to be aggressive with CD specials. I mean, if we're talking about cannibalization, when we say cannibalization, you roll out a, you know, 175 CD special with a $500 minimum balance, right? So basically open to everybody. And the last thing you want is, you know, 70, 80% of your growth coming from existing relationships, right? We always try to, I mean, there's an element of retention on our existing base, but we definitely don't want to wake up, you know, all those balances sitting in the deposits, um, you know, that are, that are a lot higher on an average basis. So I, I would want to be, I would really want to be thoughtful in, in how I'm crafting any type of promotional product today. Something that would make, you know, sense both for, the depositor and for us to build a core relationship, you know, down the road. And so whether it's a money market special, whether it's a CD special, I'm, 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 I'm building this thing out with more than just a $500 minimum balance. Right. And of course we think of stuff like, you know, relationship type of, you know, deposit products. We all want to be there. What would that look and feel like? Some of us already have that. How are we tracking that type of data? I think, um, you know, you know, you can do a lot with, uh, you know, marketing automation today. And so you can do specific, you know, target marketing, 
You've got the element of doing different new money components, which is a polarizing topic. Happy to get into that. Um, but again, just, you know, if you're going to go down that pathway, you generally have to have the more attractive rate in, in the market, but it, it you know, it could, it could, you know, result in, in, in higher levels of, of new money. So that was the comment, which is really, you know, am I making decisions today based on gut feel or kind of following the crowd or really what my data trends are telling me? And if I was just talking to an institution, they've got, um, they're doing like a little barbell CD special right now, right? Like a nine month and a 30 month. I would love to know which one is outperforming. You know, who's winning out? Where are we seeing, where can we accentuate the good and pull back on, on the bad? And I think because the Fed is going to move so quickly, we also have to maneuver quickly. Yeah, and to that point, I mean, some of the expectations of the Fed will be long done by 30 month, right? Mm -hmm. Might even be into a, you know, the halfway point of this, you know, elevated rate cycle um, where the last couple have been about two years of elevated rates before they started having to cut. Um, so that's a good, that's a good point that the 30 month might be outperforming just given the pickup today. Um, another thing, you know, you, you, you talked about, I think it's, um, we hear our, our banks and credit unions around the district speak to is just the, the deposit betas and how long do you lag for and when's the right time to, to move up. Um, is it based on internal outflows strictly, or is it based on what someone's doing down the street? Um, do you subscribe to the, you know, I don't know, the, the two to three hike um, lag before the first even um, deposit move, or do you think it's a little bit longer or a little bit sooner? Where do you fall into that? Yeah, we, we, we do a lot of data analytics on this. And there's, as we know, there's always a lag factor. We look at lag spreads and it's different for, for different products. Um, I think, you know, from, from the money market side of things, you know, the expectation is that, you know, to say the Fed, you know, goes 50, you're probably going to start to see betas enact, right? You're going to start to see deposit pricing move a little bit, but then you got to break that down too, because like, you're going to obviously separate public funds versus business and consumer. Public funds are more of a, you know, there's not much of a lag factor there. Um, but then another thing that you generally see is, like, you, you may not see this on, you know, public rate sheets. You know, you may not see, it's like, oh, you know, you know X, Y, and Z hasn't moved their money market rates yet. But it's starting to hit in the data, right? Because early in the cycle, and this was kind of like a 2017 thing, where you have a lot of negotiated pricing. And so um, in the webinar, right, the webinar we did, what was your next deposit pricing move? I think half of the audience said that they're just going to do this kind of one-off exception pricing. So I think that, you know, it's going to be for larger relationships and you're going to kind of play defense, see how things kind of, you know, go about and, and then, you know, price where you, you, you need to. And so that's why I was, I asked the question earlier. It's like, how have you set up those rules of engagement to say who gets what? And then also it's like, do you, are you just pricing on an existing, you know, product? And in this, so how much more do you get? Or do you actually have a product on the shelf? I see some institutions do that very well. I've got a couple of clients. I've got an existing product on the shelf. You got to meet this criteria. Maybe it's minimum balance, whatever, you know, and, and there's some, some things that you can, you can do there as, as well. Um, so I think that's going to be the first kind of 50, right. To a hundred. And then, 
you know, in the summertime, I, I think you're really going to start to see the high tier money market rates move. Excellent. All right, Joe, well, let's, let's shift the focus now to the other side of the balance sheet. And uh, you can pretend for a, for a minute here that, that I don't know anything at all about the asset side of the balance sheet, because that actually probably wouldn't be that, that, that far of a stretch of your imagination when you explain this to me. But uh, when you look at you know, the landscape, too, of the rising rates, um, I know you've talked about you know, asset, sensitive, asset sensitivity being big uh, with the customers you call on. Um, you know, what opportunities do you see out there on the asset side that, that your customers and, and ours alike should be taking advantage of you know, over the next you know, six months, nine months? So. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, I mean, when we talk about asset sensitivity, we're talking about interest rate risk management, and we're talking about institutions where their balance sheet are set up to perform better as rates go higher. Um, and so, you know, we we have seen we have seen an increase in you know asset sensitive institutions post pandemic. So the first question I would want to ask somebody is, you know, what type of asset sensitive institution are you, right? Are you kind of like that old school where, you know, before the pandemic, I was always asset sensitive, right? I got a relatively short asset base and a strong core funding base, which would again, allow my margins to expand as rates go high. Or am I one of those new school, like I've had all this non-material deposit growth come in from the government stimulus, my cash balance is a little bit higher. I used to be liability sensitive, but, but, but now I'm asset sensitive because there's a storyline there that we got to dig into. And then I would also ask, how does that sensitivity change or does it change when I run a scenario that says rates go up on the short end, but the yield curve flattens, changing it up a little bit, okay? Um, so, you know, if I'm asset sensitive, coming back to that, you know, ultimately, ultimately this higher rate environment and rising rates should be good. Right again, my assets would be cycling through and taking advantage of, of higher interest rates today. And I've got a strong core funding base that can really lag, you know, on, on the way up. Right. And so, um, first off, is that the case? Is that happening? Because there has been a tremendous lag on, on asset yields. And how does that work itself out? Right. Then the other piece is okay, if I'm asset sensitive, that means I do better as rates go up. But it, conversely, I have exposure to rates going down. Now, not a lot of people are talking about that today. Everybody knows rates are gonna go up, um, but in true interest rate risk you know, fashion, you gotta look at both sides of that equation, right? And so, you know, should I be protecting my margin to this thing turning around or rates going down? Because I mean, I may not be placing my bet there, but nobody knows, right? I think back to 2018, when we're in the heat of this, and it was, you know, it was, it was probably deeper into the Fed cycle, but like the five-year point was up over 3%. Everybody thought rates were going higher, right? And then what happened? You know, rates, rates came down in, in 2019. So if I really am asset sensitive, you know, you would may want to, you may want to think about, you know, adding some, some protection. And really what you're doing is you're just balancing out your risk profile. So stuff like, you know, cash extension, Right, um, you know, going out a little bit, you know, can I fill a bucket? This is a big conversation. Can I fill a bucket of fixed rate loans? You know, maybe commercial loans. I'm starting to see demand pick up in five and seven year structures. You know, how do I incorporate prepayment penalties in floors? 
What about derivatives, right? The good news today is that that's essentially buying insurance and you get paid today for buying insurance, right? So when's the best time to buy insurance against rates going down? So when everybody thinks you know, rates are going, going up. And I think, you know, another thought here would be, um, you know, if the Fed does get up to 152%, you know, down the road, you you in your asset sensitive, you'd really want to, you know, look at your derivatives toolbox here and see what type of opportunities you have to maybe buy some protection again, on, you know, against, against the, uh, the downside of that happening. Joe, do you feel like in this, this, you know, this cycle or, or these coming years that derivatives will be used even more? Uh, and I'd say that just come, you know, the shift we've had in our product mix, um, you know, for example, a lot more of the members we deal with, you know, use the pay fix swaps and then borrow short from us or they, they borrow floating rate, you know, six months to one year against us to, you know, to make their own, um, you know, term borrowing structure. Do you feel that more institutions are becoming more comfortable with these type of strategies? I, I think so. Um, you know, when the, when the uh, accounting rules changed a, a few years ago, it definitely created a buzz out there and more institutions um, really started to think that, okay, if the, if, the, if the accounting rules are easier, then maybe it must be something I should, I should take a look at, especially when you've got different alternatives and you got last a layer type of support. Um, you know, we have definitely seen a pickup in education that we do for clients on derivatives. And, you know, the fact that you're seeing credit unions start to use derivatives, um, I, 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 can, I can envision that. Um, and I think, personally, I think it should absolutely be a part of your toolbox. Even if you, you never use it, I think just having it in there, the policies, the education, who would I work with? And, uh, you know, it's just going to give you another option to help manage your balance sheet. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, when you are meeting with Alcos, is there something in particular, or maybe one thing or two things that you feel is not being talked about enough or that people are not as prepared for? Yeah. Um, I think on a grand scale, um, an area where I think some Alcos may get tripped up is you kind of get caught in, in the motions. And, and I think one of the challenges is that there's so much stuff we have to do in these ALCO reports, right? These regs got us doing all these scenarios and assumptions and documentation and back testing and blah, 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 blah. It's like, you don't get enough time to really talk about the issues, right? The issues. So I think just from a, you know, um, you know, philosophical perspective, I hear this a lot where we're spending a lot of our time on what happened and not really, you know, where we're going. And especially now when you know, you've, we've got decisions to make on our balance sheet that are gonna be long lasting, right? Some critical, critical decisions um, that, you know, it, you, got, you have to be more forward looking. I think another thing that, you know, coming back you know, to the deposit side, you know, financial institutions are so fortunate. We've got this treasure trove of data. Right, you get this awesome data. You get customer data, and uh, and it's so hard to like you know to, to mine it right and to bring it to life, and and really react again less on kind of where the crowd's going, and more on you know what my data is telling me. So that's another area where 
yeah, that takes time and it's a lot of work, but it's an area that we've been spending a lot of time on, which is data analytics to really help facilitate you know, decision-making. Excellent, Joe. Um, one more thing on the asset side, you know, going into the end of last year, beginning of this year, I know we've heard our members uh, take advantage of the, the increased yield on the investment book and really start to deploy um, you know, some of their deposits into, into investments. Um, do you think this is something that continues this year um, or is it, you know, I bought enough in Q4, Q1, I'm done. And also, do you think, you know, weighing investment alternatives is a part to the loan pricing model? Yeah, this is, a, I think, a, a challenge because as you said, last year was a, was a heavy buying year. Right. And you see a lot of financial institutions where their bond book is bigger than it has been historically. Right. Um, and so they're like, no mas. And also dealing with unrealized losses because you've had this sudden spike in rates, like the biggest swing in unrealized losses ever. Right. And so a lot of institutions are like, okay, I'm kind of done here. I want to really start to, you know, change up my asset mix, which makes a lot of sense. The challenge is that the investments that we were buying before are like two percentage points higher today. And so I think we're really going to attack this by saying, okay, what, what could my cash levels look like? Again, coming back to that forecast over the next, you know, six to 12 months, right? And trying to really get a sense of, you know, loan activity, what's the deposit, you know, storyline and what could my cash levels look like? You know, do I have enough, you know, loan demand, you know, to, to, to fund that through investment cash flow? Because, you know, you might come back and say, I'm still going to be buying investments as this investment, you know, cash flow comes due, or I've got this cash position. Maybe I should go out and uh, continue to dollar cost average or do some pre-investment to take, take advantage of, of, of higher yields. It's, it's, it's tricky, but if you go through that exercise, it should get you to a point to figure out what is that investable cash position. Excellent, Joe. That, that totally makes sense. Um, you know, and for those of you that, that want to hear more from, from Joe, I'll do a, a plug for Joe. He's, he's humble and was not going to mention this, but uh, I know in June, uh, Darling has a, a big conference. I think you all are virtual this year. Is that fair to say, Joe? We are, yep. And how, how many sessions are you offering in this, this year? I think we have uh, around 30 sessions. And you are doing them all yourself, right, Joe? <laughs> yeah, you can do that virtually. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's how it works. <laughs> For those of you who want to hear more, you know, from from Joe and Darling, you know, be on the lookout for that. Um, and and also, if you haven't had a chance to hear Joe's webinar um, that we uh, were fortunate to be a part of last week. Um, we have that archived um, out on our website as well. Great. Well. Joe, Todd, thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to follow iLink on your platform of choice so you never miss an update from FHL Bank Atlanta.